0: Let's bow together to pray. Oh God, may our prayer this morning be one of openness to hearing a word beyond the words of sermon or songs or even scripture. May uh, may the living word find a place in our hearts that is open to receive and welcome and be transformed by this resurrection, mysterious resurrection life. We pray this morning for people who have a hard time hearing, not because of belligerence or ignorance, but they just do not yet hear. May today be a hearing day through Christ. Amen. You are witnesses to these things, says Jesus to his disciples. Those words out of all the text somewhat haunt me, frankly. Because I grew up in a culture, in a church, that highly valued witnessing. Going out and training people and telling people that Jesus died to save them from their sins. And so we did. We went out and we witnessed And it was a very specific message on the one hand, and yet when we drilled down into it, it was at best vague and undefined. Because we hadn't been there to see. And we didn't quite know what it meant. And there was no direct proof or evidence that any of this had happened. Only these indirect or anecdotal stories that could be easily dismissed. So what is it that we can give witness to? I realized this week that I've been now through 61 Easter's. And I remember most all of them. Even the ones I don't remember, there are a few stories. My mother's favorite story to tell on me is uh, me singing at the top of my lungs at age three in the backyard. Here comes Peter Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail. Hippity-hoppity, Easter's on its way. I was a preacher from age of three. I remember the Easter Sunday morning at the Far Hills Baptist Church of Dayton, Ohio. An Easter service, much like the ones we have here with uh, overflow crowds, extra chairs put down the center aisle. I happen to be one sitting in the center aisle, which does feel quite odd. It feels like you're sort of sitting exposed in the middle of things. But I took consolation because there was this really cute older girl, I think she was in eighth grade, who was sitting in front of me. And so I was mostly distracted during that service until the point when she kind of quietly leaned forward and threw up all of the Easter candy she had gorged on that morning. And I was just amazed because it was kind of technicolor. It was all these jelly beans and and uh, it was really something. And uh, and I remember an usher came down the aisle and opened up an order of service and laid it over the technicolor. And I thought to myself, at last, there is really a purpose for these orders of worship because uh, at the church I grew up in, they never changed from week to week except the numbers of the songs. And the guy got up and said, hey, let's all turn to 335 or whatever. So finally a purpose. When I was 13, Easter Sunday was going to include a new suit for me. Uh, I had my mother picked out this suit and I'd gone and had it altered. I'm sure they had to lengthen the pants. To (laughs) Thank you for laughing. Um, But I remember vividly when we picked it up, as we left the Robert Hall clothier, we got in the car, turned the car on, and heard the announcement of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And I remember not knowing what to think because I knew just a little bit about this man who scared me because he was saying things that were causing people to think new thoughts that didn't fit in this very white world that I lived in. What did this have to do with Easter? Well, as you know, I became a minister, and I realized kind of looking this week, that after serving some years as an associate pastor, I've now been the preaching pastor on 31 Easters. I've written these sermons that have tried to give witness to this great mystery. I'm keenly aware of the words that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, warning that we who preach might still miss the point ourselves. Do you realize this is possible for preachers and parishioners? That we could believe this Easter story at one level. We could sing these hymns, We could learn all the details. We could prepare ourselves to give a defense for this faith and still miss the key point of the whole Good Friday Easter story. Of this one who came in love and who died and who was raised again. Most of us have been taught this story as a tale about Jesus alone. That if you believe God did this for Jesus, you can go to heaven. When, in fact, this is a story about what happened to Jesus and what God is unleashing in the world in every facet of life, in nature In humanity, in your life, and in my life. The reality that our dying, not just at the end of life, but all of these dyings that happen to us when we fail, when we hit the wall, when we say goodbye, when we enter into a new phase of life where everything we've known before is thrown out the window, that every one of those occasions for dying holds with it this amazing promise that those who give their lives in dying and look in hope can find that rising again to new life. In fact, we could even say that you can't be born again unless first you die. You can't be born again unless first you You die. This dying and rising, this surrendering and growing, this vulnerability and this moment of breakthrough is the way. It is the journey. It is the sacred pattern that's found in nature. It's found in other religions that people must enter into it and embrace it if we're going to discover and awaken to this deeper, richer, more transforming, wise and enduring life. I am the way, Jesus said. Come, follow me. He always said, follow me. He never said, worship me. He said, follow me. And when he said, believe in me, he wasn't talking about an intellectual exercise. He's talking about our lives. Walk into this way. What is the way? I am the way. This way of Dying and trusting and waiting and looking. There's an old song we sang uh, years ago. Jesus walked this lonesome valley. You know what? He had to walk it by himself. No one else could walk it for him. He had to walk it by himself. We sang that song all the time. I don't remember if we sang the final verse. You must walk this lonesome valley. You have to walk it by yourself. No one else can walk it for you. You have to walk it by yourself. Frankly. Candidly. It's far easier just to believe in Jesus. Than to follow Jesus in this way. Of walking into those deaths. Those endings. Those goodbyes. Those dead ends. Those deep dark valleys. We do everything we can to avoid death and failure and walking through valleys. We entertain ourselves to death. We take drugs. We avoid things. We crank up the music. We work too hard. We play too hard. We buy too much stuff. All in an effort to mask over the truth that we are all, all of us, vulnerable, wounded, having to say goodbye, having to fail in life. And ultimately coming to that point where life ends and we step into that which is beyond. I used to think of this as bad news. I used to worry as a little boy, someday I'm going to die. When in fact, that's not bad news. It's just life. Richard Rohr says that those who avoid these deaths really are avoiding life. Because they're the source of Of life for us to give into these deaths, to allow them to have space to teach us things, to heal things in us, and to raise us up into something new. That's life. It takes courage. It takes courage to move beyond your fears and your doubts and to trust this way, this truth, this life. You are witnesses to these things, Jesus said to the disciples, which is more than just swallowing the unbelievable and just regurgitating it out to others. You are witnesses to these things means that we get to discover in Jesus' death and resurrection a truthfulness and a sacredness, a beauty, which awakens us to a bigger realm, a, a, a more beautiful and expansive seeing of the world to to look beyond our usual fears and ego needs and our tendencies to to compare and compete and to see life more graciously more humbly with more empathy with more generosity it's a centeredness and a, a peacefulness and a hopefulness and a contentment that really is a union with God, a God who's beyond us, but a God who's also deep within us, who truly wants for you and me peace, happiness, contentment, wholeness. At the nine thirty service, we dedicated little Oliver, and we asked the people, we asked the parents. Will you do everything that you can to enable little Oliver to be the man that God would have him be? For You see, we believe deeply. We know in our hearts that God has a dream for each one of us. No matter how old you are, no matter how cynical you are, no matter where you've been, that God has a dream for you to live into this fullness of who you are. God doesn't want you to be me or Emily or Nina. God wants you to be you. It's God's dream. To step into it is the good gift of life. The reality is that if you don't see it, if you can't hear it, it sounds like foolishness. It sounds like stupidity. It sounds like easy believism. John, the writer of 1 John says, the reason the world does not know us, the reason they don't get us, is because they didn't get Jesus. They don't, they don't, they don't connect with what he's saying what he's conveying. To the world. They, they don't get us. They don't get this way. It's not that they're wrong or bad or stupid or evil. Or even trying to be contrary. It's just that they don't hear it. They don't ex- see it. They don't experience it. It's as if you can't really see it from the outside looking in. And the result is that often these people feel confounded and confused by us. Maybe even a little bit threatened or annoyed by us. And sometimes they even feel offended. To them, our words sound like the words of the adult on the Charlie Brown uh, shows. Wow, 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 wow! Just so many words. They just don't get it. I'm not judging them. I have empathy. It's like my mother. When it came to food. My mother was raised in an orphanage. She never experienced a home. She never experienced home cooking. She ate institutional food. Her whole growing up years. And then when she married my father. Who came from this dysfunctional home in West Virginia. They set up a house. The only way they knew how. Just sort of utilitarian. Economical. Food was about fuel. And it was just filler. Something to fill up your belly. And. So she never knew about cooking, really. For my mother, cooking meant opening a can or pulling something out of the freezer or opening up a box or frying to death whatever you had in front of you. I thought it, it was a big deal in my house when one day she brought home something from the store called seasoned salt. At last, things could take a, taste a little bit different. I knew something was amiss when I went to college. And I was the only kid on campus who thought that the cafeteria food was delicious. <laughs> and so when I married Terry, who had been raised in a home where food was prepared, it was cooked, it was uh, uh, seasoned and made ready and right, I, I kind of didn't know what to do with it. I was disoriented by it. and. Even resisted it at first, but then I tasted, and I got it. Food is not just filler. My mom never got it. My mom always seemed almost um, disturbed by how Terry cooked. Why do you chop up all these onions? And why why do you sauté things? And why do you mix all these ingredients? Why do you make real whipped cream? You know, you can just get that stuff in a can and turn it upside down and squirt it. And why would anyone make their own pie crust when you can just go to the freezer and, and get one? She didn't understand. She'd never experienced it. And she her palate was not attuned. She She didn't taste it. And so... In her eyes, Terry looked kind of showy. Or maybe like she was being too picky. Which, if you know Terry, you know she's not showy. And it's obviously obvious she's not picky because she married me. So... <laughs> but something in her had been awakened as a child to the taste of good food, of going to the store and buying fresh food and putting it together. It, it tastes better. It's better for you. It retains its vitamins. It doesn't have all those preservatives. But it's also, I think, something more sacred. It's almost sacramental to take what God gives and to work with it and bring out its best and then to savor it. All of that makes me wonder, by the way, the the little line in the gospel reading. Luke says, while the disciples are in their joy, they were disbelieving and wondering about Jesus. And he pops off. By the way, do you all have anything to eat? What? Eat? We're wondering if you're a ghost and you're worried about something to eat. And Luke says they had some broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. I was taught that this was just proof that Jesus had a body. He ate food. That there's a connection between the Jesus of history and the, the Christ of resurrection. But I think it's more than that. I think this, it perhaps is this little subtle hint that even in the most primal foods like fish caught from the lake and broiled on the fire, there's this grace, this life. That's always wanting to break forth. And those who see it, those who taste it, are in their own ways giving witness to the resurrection and the life. Richard Rohr says that true religion is always an occasion for joyful mysticism rather than some grim test of moral endurance. And so, in this world of fast food religion... That prefers prepackaged formulas for how to get in with God. We are here to bear witness to a deeper reality that goes beyond rituals and rules and regulations to this delicious transformation, this way of Easter, death, life. The psalmist said, O taste and see. That the Lord is good. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. You who are the mystery of life. Whose ways can never be contained in a book. Or even in the rituals of faith. For you transcend them all. We Pick up the hints of death and life, of despair and hope, of darkness and light, of sadness and joy, and we would be your people to live the Easter faith in our very bones this day, now and always, to your glory. Amen.